Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into the Spike podcast, I just wanted to thank everyone who came to Spike's live event this week with Julia Hartley Brewer and Brendan O'Neill. It was absolutely brilliant fun. If you missed it, don't worry too much. You'll get to hear the conversation in next week's episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show. But if you want to make sure you don't miss our next live event, the best way is by becoming a Spiked supporter. Spike supporters will always get early access to tickets and will always get a discount. There's plenty of other perks that come with being a Spike supporter too. Plus, you get to help out Spiked. It's thanks to our supporters that Spiked is able to keep going and growing. So to find out more about becoming a Spike supporter, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. Now, onto the Spike podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me as ever, we have Spike's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the energy crisis, Keir Starmer's vision for labour and the witch hunting of Kemi Badenoch. So Britain is heading into what's looking like a very tough winter. Energy prices are soaring. Lots of kind of electricity companies are potentially going bankrupt. The price of gas has got so high that lots of factories have had to shut down, threatening our supplies of vital CO2. Tom, it doesn't look good, does it? No, I mean, as many people have said, it's a sort of perfect storm of mm. different events all coming at the same time. And as everyone's made the same joke, part of that is the fact that it hasn't been particularly stormy recently. Yeah. Um, wind power is usually about a fifth of our energy mix. And it was down to about 2% last month because it has been particularly, uh, not particularly blowy recently. Uh, you have some things which are genuine unforeseen circumstances, like this fire in Kent, which yeah. basically knocked out the subsea cable with France, by which we get a fair amount of energy. Um, but of course, it, and then there's obviously the kind of soaring energy prices, but so much of this could have been avoided. And so much of this has been made so much worse, of course, by the decisions, not just of this government, but previous governments in particular. You know, you think about the gas issue, the fact that we're sitting on so much mm. untapped shale gas in particular. I mean, David Cameron 10 years ago was saying that, if, you know, if we even access 10% of the reserves that we're looking at, you could power our gas needs for 50 years. But that mix of environmental activism and just sort of Tory cowardice on relation to this particular issue has meant that's been unfulfilled. Of course, we've underinvested in nuclear. We rely too much on renewables. And as Rob and yourself and a few other people have made this point, it is essentially... Um, the end point of governments just putting green virtue signaling ahead of keeping the lights on, yeah. of a focus on energy that's secure, that's cheap, and that's reliable. Um, meanwhile, they've just been, you know, throwing subsidies at unreliable energy sources, hoping that some sort of technological fix will come along to sort out issues around, you know, storing power and all the rest of it, and then also letting gas storage deplete. Um, and I think it's just particularly striking that you've got Kwasi Kwarteng, the business minister, having to pledge explicitly that there won't be blackouts yeah. this year. We can't let the seriousness of that escape. You can only hope that they find some sort of fix in the in the um, immediate term. But at the same time, this is the culmination of a lot of huge mistakes and a huge shift away from recognising that you need cheap and reliable energy in order to maintain a prosperous society and one that you can literally keep the lights on. And the fact that that's gone by the wayside in recent decades is really staggering, definitely. Yeah, Ella, what do you make of that? I mean, you know, the, the focus always, every discussion about energy is dominated by sustainability, the environment, 
um, the pathway to net zero or previous kind of environmental pledges. Mm. You know, when was the last time you heard a politician say we need to be self-sufficient in energy, that we need to be, you know, we need to have energy resilience until about the last few weeks, I suppose, where they're trying to cover their backs. Yeah, no, there's the the problem that we've talked about many times on this podcast is the fact that there is um there is so much short termist thinking when it mm. comes to the environment and and gesture politics, you know, um waxing lyrical about whether you call it a climate emergency or climate change, rather than thinking about what kind of innovation is needed to to keep the lights on and to make life better for people. I mean, mm. the word sustainability is funny. Everyone always uses it. But obviously this scenario that we're in at the moment shows that so much of the way in which government is reacting to Mm. um, the hysteria from Insulate Britain, Extinction Rebellion, but also more reputable kind of um, green activists who are equally being alarmist about the climate is completely unsustainable. I mean, actually, it's quite remarkable listening to ministers talk to the press this morning where all of them are basically in a kind of very complacent way saying, well, we know it's going to be a hard winter. And you think, well, hang on, you know, what? Is it? Does it have to be? This, uh, this, and um, this is bad news for a, a population that has just been through a pandemic, in particular, an elderly population who we know um, suffers. Lots of them from fuel poverty, who struggle when we have particularly bad winters with um, rising energy prices. Uh, this is since when are we allowed to be complacent about mm. this? Rob Lyons wrote an article for Spiked this week about fracking, which was really brilliant because one of the points he makes is. You have, as Tom says, this, these reserves of shale gas. And part of the problem that Rob outlines is not that fracking is sort of, you know, as it's made out to be inherently evil, you know, conjuring up in people's minds sort of like Aaron Brockovich style poisoning and tremors <laughs> and all kinds of things. But that there's, there has been a real, the point he makes is that there's been a real moratorium on and, and closing down of any discussion of possibilities. So yes, there is uh, questions to be raised about fracking about how it's done properly in the same way that nuclear when people think about nuclear if you're not a sort of climate scientist or someone with a lot of uh, you know intelligence on this you might think oh nuclear nuclear disasters yeah and there's a real block on being able to a superficial block on being able to follow through with these new technologies and the funny thing is and i've been thinking about this you know greens always demand that we have a change in psych whether it's you know in the way we think whether it's like you know getting people to overcome their disgust at eating bugs or or getting people to think, you know, differently about driving and to change the way we think. But they also, but they're very resistant to changing the way they think about innovative technologies. They're very anti-nuclear. They're very anti-energy, actually, that we've we've mentioned this on the podcast before. So at the same time that they're arguing that we have to completely change the way we think as human beings, they're also saying that we have to stop thinking about changing our habits for the better. And I mean, and both of those energy sources are, you know, would reduce our carbon emissions as well. Mm. That's the great irony. And yet they are opposed tooth and nail by Greens. I mean, in the coming months, we've got COP26. The whole world is going to descend on Glasgow. They're going to come to Britain. Presumably, the Prime Minister wanted to showcase um, our, you know, wonderful kind of renewable revolution. Mm. I mean, they're now going to see a basket case, aren't they, Tom? Well, that's good. They're so striking, especially now that the Boris Johnson, even at the moment, is currently in New York trying to convince the world to follow Britain down mm. this kind of net zero path and all the rest of it. And yet what's happening at home is so disastrous. And it could be, you know, as you say, even worse by the time COP26 rolls around. But again, there's just, there's so little just 
basic rationality in this discussion. It's like you're saying about the fracking thing. I mean, one of the reasons that under the Obama presidency, the US was able to drastically bring down its emissions was because it, it went the route of exploiting its, its mm. shale gas. And, you know, people don't know that. And yeah. that's not because people are stupid or whatever. It's because this is never really discussed, you know. And then similarly with the, the question of nuclear, it's something which is almost just parked to one side in the discussion because there is this green aversion to it, arguably still a bit of a cultural aversion to it. People associate it with, you know, all kinds of horrendous disasters and all the rest of it. Chernobyl and even nuclear weapons as well. Exactly. And, and you know, just there's no kind of sense of just being serious about this. And what strikes me is that, you know, what, regardless of what the energy source is, I really couldn't care less. I mean, mm. the point is that it, sh- it should be seen as a good and a necessary thing to have cheap and reliable energy. The question is then how you get there in a way that again has the least downsides possible. If we're having that kind of discussion, we certainly wouldn't be in this mess. And arguably, especially with shale and, and nuclear to an even greater extent, we would be um, keeping people of a kind of green perspective happy. The problem is those people of that green perspective actually don't want that future. Yeah. They don't, you know, there's, even if, you know, tomorrow you could bring about an energy rich, but also carbon neutral thing, they would still be uneasy about it because what they don't like is industrial society. They want things to be reined in. They want people to have less really ultimately, whether they admit it or not. And then you've got the political class, which has just been trying to have its cake and eat it mm. on these situations. They've been trying to just throw money at technologies, which aren't there on a wing and a prayer that some sort of technological fix will emerge in order to square this circle for them. But it hasn't. They've refused to make those kinds of choices. Um, they've just given in um, to the eco-lobby and so many of these issues. And it's it's now that's just really coming back to bite them. But you would hope it would spark some sort of reassessment. But the fact that Boris Johnson is still there in New York and still gearing up for COP26 with all of the talking points he currently has, it doesn't seem like any more reason is going to break out in this discussion anytime yet. And we still have uh, Insulate Britain protesting on the M25, or perhaps the government injunction will put a stop to that. But it seems as if you know that even the even the madness unfolding can is is never recognised for what it is. That you know actually wind power over reliance on renewables has played a big role in this. Yeah, there was a fantastic moment on Good Morning Britain when one of the Insulate Britain spokespersons um, was you know people were laughing at the fact that he doesn't insulate. He hasn't insulated his own house. But actually, the better moment in that interview is as this uh, protester was storming off, having been, you know, he was pissed off about being held accountable for his views. He stood up and he said, I'm sick of trying mm. to talk to the public about what we think. Mm. And yeah, he lost his temper. Maybe he probably didn't, you know, didn't want to say that, didn't didn't think he was going to say that, but it really revealed the nature of so much of not just the extremes of Extinction Rebellion or Insulate Britain or Birth Strike or any of these offshoot kind of nutty um green movements, but the the wider conversation around what Boris Johnson is talking about in relation to COP26 and the political uh, consensus around this. I mean, you know, Boris Johnson's all over the papers at the moment for telling the international community to kind of get tough and get serious and doing his classic kind of um, bombastic, I'm I'm the man with the plan thing about this. But what he hasn't done is at any point um, addressed his own public in relation to environmental plans. I mean, from the very micro level of councils now instituting low traffic neighbourhoods and pissing off anyone with a car, right up to big questions about how they're dealing with energy and the energy crisis. So this, this the whole nature of the drive towards uh, being carbon neutral or green politics is a reluctance and actually a, a not just a reluctance, 
a willful um, desire to ignore the wishes of the public, to not talk to the public about what you think, right from the insulate Britain madmen up to the Prime Minister. You know what it's like when you're scrolling through Netflix, trying to find something good to watch, but you've already exhausted everything that looks vaguely half decent. Well, what if I told you that there's a way to unlock even more films and TV shows with a handy tool called ExpressVPN? ExpressVPN allows you to access content that is only supposed to be available in other countries. For instance, if you're in the UK like myself, you can use ExpressVPN to trick your computer into thinking you're in the US. That way you can unlock all kinds of extra goodies. I've used it to access episodes of South Park that haven't been aired in Britain yet and to watch classic films like Pulp Fiction. ExpressVPN is really easy to use. You just open the app, select a location, tap one button to connect and refresh the page to access thousands of new shows or movies. Once you've signed up, there's over 100 different countries you can choose from. You can then watch anime on Japanese Netflix. You can watch The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on Australian Netflix or Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Canadian Netflix and so much more. The same trick works with any streaming service. You'll be surprised how much content on YouTube is actually hidden from you. One of the great things about ExpressVPN compared to similar services is that it doesn't mess with your internet speed. You can stream in HD no problem with no buffering and no lag. It's compatible with all your devices, your phone, your laptop, your media consoles, smart TVs and more. Not only does it let you change your location, it also encrypts your data and lets you surf the web safely and anonymously. So go to expressvpn.com slash spiked to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Get our special offer at expressvpn.com slash spiked today. Let's talk a bit about Keir Starmer. Uh, the Labour leader has set out his vision for the party and for the country using um, a more than 10,000 word pamphlet. Um, Tom, did we learn anything about Sir Keir? And isn't it really just about time he did actually have a bit of a vision? <laughs> I don't think we've, we've learned too much. I mean, it's, it's striking to me that the big question that Labour has to confront is how do they lose the working classes? And his answer to this is a 12,000 word pamphlet for the Fabian Society. It's Mm. a bit strange. But reading it, it's the kind of sensation you get whenever you listen to Keir speak or you read an article that he's written, which is that it's so incredibly bland, almost to the point where you kind of don't take it in. I mean, it gives the impression of someone who is so conscious of the, sort of political tripwise he might set off at any one moment, either within his own party, so conscious about the kind of p- the general positioning that he wants to set out that he almost ends up saying nothing particularly at all. I mean, mm. I've got some of the his like pledges such as they are here, which are, are things that almost no one could disagree with. We, yeah. You know, prioritising hardworking families. If you work hard and play by the rules, you should be rewarded fairly. Your chances in life should not be defined by the circumstances of your birth. Do you know anyone who disagrees with any of those things? I'd like particular? to reward slacking and, <laughs> and privilege by birth. I mean, they're probably the more striking things where you could see him trying to distance himself from the left of the Labour Party and the whole move around the the electoral college system is another thing that we might talk about in Mm. that respect, where he talks about, you know, the state shouldn't stifle private industry, that the two can go hand in hand. But whilst that might cause some friction with the left of his party, I mean, in what sense is this providing any kind of vision or alternative? I mean, that kind of line about 
what we have is we have a you know we have a dynamic public sector through which we fund our wonderful public services what boris johnson and even before him other tories have been saying yeah. for a very long time um and there's just nothing really tangible there. You just see him almost trying to connect the dots of various things that in the press or in the think tank world, people have said that he needs to focus on, as well as pressures within his own party, a bit in there about patriotism and how that's different from nationalism, a bit in there about why community is so important. This, that, a few blue Labour notes here, a few kind of more identitarian notes <laughs> there, if you like. But it it, it sums up to, to nothing, yeah. really. And obviously a lot of people are comparing him to to Blair and again to wanting to bring the, the party to, to the centre ground. It's at least that had a kind of a sense of conviction yeah. to it. You know, it had a kind of clear vision such as it was. I mean, if anything, had a zeal in relation to questions of foreign policy and all the rest of it, which have unravelled in spectacular and hellish fashion over the course of recent months. So it's just like, as I said, when he became leader and gave his speech on video, what was it, you know, back at the beginning of the lockdown, it's like slowly drowning in blancmange listening to mm. this man speak or reading what he's written. So yeah, definitely no vision from him at this point. I mean, Ella, there's been no, um, there's no hint that there'd be any vision over the past uh, year or so. Mm. He's certainly not had anything to say about the the pandemic or even the kind of economic response to the pandemic, which is, which is interesting, you know, that you'd think there would be some, a bit more disagreement in those areas, a bit more, um, a bit more move for not necessarily having to disagree with the scientists, but disagreeing with how we move forward. Yeah. Or that, you know, being an opposition basically. Yeah. Um, there's, I think Keir Starmer has really relied on the excuse of us being in the middle of an emergency and in the middle of a pandemic, um, when actually you can flip it and say that the last 18, 19 months, whatever it is now, has been that one of the most, you know, a perfect opportunity to be able to put forward some kind of vision. Yeah. Okay, maybe not in May 2020, where everyone's wondering whether the nation is going to drop dead. But certainly now, in coming out of the pandemic, where you have a population that's asking questions about what a new normal means, what, um, you know, what kind of big questions we have in relation to uh, spending and the economy to education, you know, so much of a shakeup that happened in the pandemic, lots of it very negative. Yeah. Um, then need to have political answers. And the best they can do is, you know, more recent, just recently, the row over universal credit. And um, as we mentioned on the podcast, kind of fighting over 20 quid. But then when someone says, well, what would Labour do? I mean, what's your plan? Then they say, uh, uh, well, really, we, we just want to point out the fact that the Tories aren't the party of low tax. You think, oh, so pathetic. Yeah. It's so low ball. And the what lots of people are sort of failing to point out actually is that Keir Starmer has had a long time now to prove himself this is a very long you said it was 10,000 it's funny you, where, everywhere you read it's 10,000 it's 11,000 I said more than 10,000 no, so it's not to split the difference yeah, but it's one of these things where everyone's it, it's like Tom says what a bizarre way to put forward a, a vision in this it's a bit like when you hand in your dissertation at school yeah, or university yeah. and you're like egging the, the word count there's a there's a real sense of I think the most important thing is who is this for? It's most certainly not for uh, Labour voters or prospective Labour voters, the Labour voters that they lost in the last election. It's definitely about maintaining a kind of continuity in the Labour Party because it doesn't rock any boats. I mean, people, John McDonnell was talking about how, you know, this, it's, it doesn't say anything, but also it's a kind of a threat to the left. I mean, it, when was Keir Starmer ever not going to be a threat to the left? There is no left left in the Labour Party. Yeah. It's it, you know, this is a party that is hell bent solely and focused on surviving. 
And I think that's what this document proves. There's nothing really that contentious in it because they, if they came out and said and disagreed with Boris Johnson, either on the, on green stuff, no way, on the economy, no way, because mm. no one wants to do anything um, innovative around uh, coming out of this pandemic and uh, cowardice around the pandemic itself. I mean, he's not going to disagree with any of the COVID policies because he's terrified that if he does, he'll either be called a COVID denier or, you know, lax or something. So it's a completely cowardly document from a party that's only interested in staying alive, which is of no, will be of no interest to voters. We should talk a little bit about some of the internal party dynamics. Mm. I mean, you mentioned, you know, some of the left being angry. A lot of them are angry at the moment about this kind of rule change within Labour. Keir Starmer wants to revert to the older electoral college system that Labour used to have. Um, the changing that to a one member, one vote system famously led to Corbyn being elected. And obviously, if, it seems if the only theme of Keir Starmer's um, Labour leadership is I'm not Corbyn. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all it comes down to. I mean, as you say, these these policies and or this shift in relation to how the Labour leader gets elected, it's obviously it's as close to um, a drastic statement as Keir Starmer is able to make, obviously, because hmm. it is naturally going to raise the hackles of the left. He's obviously in search of his Kinnock moment on some way, shape or form, moving to that old system which elected Ed Miliband where it's kind of split up into thirds in terms of who decides who the leader is between MPs, the unions and, and members rather than one member, one vote. Now, obviously, it's an attempt to kind of, you know, lock the left out of the leadership. It's worth remembering that under the current system, Keir Starmer was elected by an overwhelming majority. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so this myth of leaving Labour members yeah. being incredibly dyed-in-the-wall radical left-wingers was always nonsense. You know, it was never as firm and ideological as that, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, but it also, you just see a sense in which um, all left-wing politics is about is squabbling over control of the Labour Party, which is so incredibly unedifying, boring, confuses most people. And I think often actually ignores what they have in common. I mean, you made this point in relation to Labour suddenly caring about democracy. But yeah. That's a really important point to stress, which is, first of all, is that they seem to only care about democracy when it's in relation to party democracy. Yeah. CLPs, who picks the leader, all that stuff. That's all they ultimately care about. Because, of course, when Brexit rolled around, although it took a little while... Ultimately, you had the centrists or the soft left, you want to call them that, and the Corbynistas and the Blairites all united, more or less, on yeah. the question of overturning Brexit. You know, there's a lot of Corbynistas who like to pretend that they didn't, you know, they didn't support that position now. But again, it just shows, on the one hand, the level of navel gazing. There was a there was a quote in the Spectator this week talking about how we need to get out of not only navel gazing but talking about navel gazing, which is the <laughs> gear that Keir Starmer definitely seems to be stuck yeah. in in many respects. But it also just gives the lie to the idea that any of these people have any idea how to reconnect with those voters because they mm. were both kind of collaborators, if you like, in this policy, which basically broke large sections of the working class from the Labour Party, possibly for good. Yeah. So again, you just it's that it's that it's that cliche of you know two bald men squabbling over a comb is definitely what you <laughs> sense going into this Labour Party conference. After a year of cancellations and delays, the Battle of Ideas Festival is back. In two weeks' time, on the 9th and 10th of October at Church House in Westminster, the Academy of Ideas will be holding its flagship event of public debates, lectures, discussions, uh, audience Q&As with sessions on everything from 20 years after Afghanistan to Bitcoin to what's next for the royals that Fraser Myers is going to be hosting and uh, speaking on uh, from GB News to boycotts, what's happening um, in the world of free speech. Tom Slater is going to be speaking on the new norm 
normal and whether or not we should resist or embrace it. Also a discussion on the party of the poor. Who is it? Is it Labour? Is it the Tories? Is it neither? There's something for everyone. It's time to stop shouting at the telly and start getting stuck into public debate as it should be. So join us at the Battle of Ideas Festival in two weeks. Tickets are at battleofideas.org.uk or if you're skin after 18 months of pandemic, you can volunteer with me. See you there. So Kemi Badenoch, rising star in the Conservative Party, um, junior equalities minister, has essentially been the target of what feels like a bit of a witch hunt at the moment. There's been two exposés um, by Vice News in the last two weeks. Uh, most recently, some WhatsApp messages uh, showing that she said she basically didn't care about colonialism and was, you know, slagging off some other black politicians. Uh, last week, uh, apparently there was an audio recording. We've not heard the recording, but it was reported on um, in Vice again, saying with her saying that she doesn't understand what transsexuals want, which apparently is a no-no, and talking about men in women's changing rooms. Um, I mean, what, have we, what do we make of this saga? It does feel a bit like a, a, of a witch hunt or a smear campaign, doesn't it? It does feel like a witch hunt. And the most important part of that is that these were private messages. I mean, can't strain that point enough that they're, you know, she was with the recorded audio that none of us have heard um, that was presumably in private, secretly recorded Mm. or at least leaked without her knowledge. Um, We all know from a personal level that the way we talk in private is not the same way in which we talk in public, particularly if you're a public figure and particularly if you're a politician talking about tricky issues like trans rights versus women's rights, that this eternal, infernal debate, particularly around toilets. I'm sure there are many people um, who have had kind of hairy discussions where they've tested out what they think. They've probably said the wrong thing. In fact, actually, it's questionable whether or not she did say the wrong thing because she's, you know, the use of the word transsexuals. There are lots of people who um, still use that word and it's Mm. only become complicated. The language around gender has only become complicated recently. But anyway, this was a policy document. She wasn't putting forward changes that would affect the rest of citizens. She was having a conversation. Equally with the WhatsApp messages, she was talking, they were actually leaked by a former confidant of hers, a friend, someone who was a Conservative Party um, supporter and campaigner who uh, said that they leaked the messages to Vice to prove that Badenoch wasn't um, fit for her office and was essentially a bad person. If you look at what she said, I mean, she was asked whether or not Sam Gima should be a uh, prime minister or stand for a higher role. She said, fuck no. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> do you think that's racist? I'm not, you know, yeah. it's just an opinion about Sam Gima. He's a fairly unassuming, uninspiring politician. I'd probably he lost say his the, seat for a reason. Yeah, say the same thing. Um, she, you know, it, in some ways insulted uh, Diane Abbott by talking about her as being incompetent. You know, whether or not you agree with her opinions and this whole fuss about colonialism, she was not going on a racist rant yeah. to a group of people that mattered. She was having a private conversation. And I think the really, what this doesn't say very much about Badenoch, what it does say about Vice being you know, shitty journalists and uh, the people who are stirring this up all across the mainstream press, actually, is that when an individual, and Brendan Modile made this point, makes a, a contrary point to the norm, when a young black woman um, who is meant to hold certain views mm. um, according to identity politics refuses to hold those views and has different ones, she becomes a witch that you have to um, dig through her private history and and kind of show her off in the streets in this really unedifying way. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the key point, isn't it, Tom? I mean, Badenoch is someone who doesn't toe the identitarian line. She doesn't believe in systemic racism. She even said something really shocking, which was that Britain is a good place to be a black person. <laughs> how could you say, how could she say that? Um, you know, she doesn't support Black Lives Matter and, and of course is, you know, questioning the kind of trans dogma. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really what's at stake here, isn't it? That's the line that's been crossed. Yeah. And b- being crossed by a woman of color, that yeah. seems to be the, the key thing as both of you've been saying, because the level of vitriol is staggering. I mean, mm. all of the views expressed in, um, or reported in these two pieces on Vice. Now, I think we should, take them with a pinch of salt they could easily have been wrenched out of context we haven't yeah. seen the transcript we haven't seen a recording private whatsapp messages you were saying Alec, you know these, these things exist in a different context it's not the same as something you stated publicly and sincerely um but at the same time you know you could find a lot of tory politics you could find a lot of politicians full stop we probably have you know some agreement with a lot of those points even the slightly more fruity stuff around colonialism but it's still the fact that it's her saying it it's like mm. when you know women and feminists diverge from gender orthodoxy the level of vitriol often incredibly poisonous, sexist, or in this case, you know, it has this kind of deeply ugly kind of bigoted aspect to it. Um, and that's in the in terms of the kind of broader discussion of someone like Kemi, Kemi Bagnock, I think it's fair to say. And it's also just what's, it's this new form of journalism, mm. which I don't know how new it is, but it's, it's something which first of all blurs the line between journalism and activism. I mean, Ben yeah. Hunt, who was previously the BBC's LGBT correspondent, their first LGBT mm. correspondent, incidentally, um, he previously got pulled up for a piece on BBC News about puberty blockers. Um, because, and the BBC eventually ruled that after some complaints that it was one sided, it basically upfronted in the wake of the Kira Bell ruling a lot of quotes from various people and charities talking about suicide amongst trans kids mm. as a result of this and all the rest of it. But also you quite clearly see here here, that this is a concerted campaign against an individual of the sort. We saw George Eaton at the New Statesman go after Roger Scruton. Um, It's something which completely blurs the line between journalism and activism. And you wonder to the extent to which in some cases it is just a kind of hit job. That's Mm. nothing new, obviously. But I do wonder the components to which some of this stuff is also almost unconscious. There is a section of the liberal media or the more identitarian people within it who genuinely confuse um, their political priorities, if you like, for their job as a journalist, mm. genuinely confuse opinions and facts in a way that I think is quite striking and see their kind of sense of mission of not just exposing the truth, but of getting to some kind of outcome, whether it's claiming a, a scalp, in this case, punishing a heretic, all the rest of it. Um, it's a subtle difference, but it's really quite poisonous. And mm. it's the sort of thing that, um, again, makes people really distrust aspects of the of the media because they just always assume there's an there's an agenda attached to it really and you know finally i mean just to return to this point about her being a woman of color i mean she's by no means the first person to have sort of strayed from the patch and you know manira mirza comes to mind you think of some of the other kind of trevor um, phillips i guess trevor phillips um i mean particularly tories it seems to Mm. happen to more often um you know why is it that people's race has to be brought into into all of this. You know, they're not allowed to have a different view because of their race. In the abstract, there's questions about solid. what we used to talk about as solidarity is that you had a sense of within a community that you held certain views and you, were, you acted in solidarity with those views. For example, 
you know, not just black people would fight back against racism, but white people too. But now, as we've you know talked about many times, and lots of people have written about on Spiked, identity politics silos you, which means that you can't have solidarity, but you also can't have criticism mm. within movements. So you you uh, and there's a very closed off view of that you can't, if you are a black person, criticize anti-racist politics. You can't, if you are a woman, raise questions around contemporary feminism, and you most certainly can't if you're uh, you know. In fact, no one can raise questions about the kind of more extreme end of trans activism, which argues that anyone should be allowed in any space and gender and sex uh, sex are constructs. And the the offshoot of this is that actually for minorities or for people who fit into these different boxes that identity politics likes to create, it's incredibly limiting because I'm sure Kami Badenoch is sick to her back teeth of being talked about as a young black woman of colour, as you know, as I, even I described her. I'm sure she just wants to be known as a politician. Mm. Um, and actually she's the politician, a part of a conservative party. There are lots of things to criticise Badenoch about. There are, you know, her party has endless policies that we think are rubbish and want changed. But there's an obsession, a bit like Pretty Patel as well, an obsession mm. with focusing on her identity it's it's never quite outright and people don't necessarily come out with the fact that a black woman shouldn't see this shouldn't say this but it's always under the surface there why would she as a woman of color say this why would pretty patel as um, a member of a diverse cabinet say this there's always that question and really that's the kind of questioning and focusing on race or identity that you we used to call prejudice and we used to call an obsession, an unhealthy obsession with race. But now it's a kind of a necessity for identity politics that you first of all focus on what the person looks like and their background, and then their thoughts and their views are an afterthought. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday, and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.